want you to go to your white, your white books. That's what I want you to go to. Go to 23 in your white books. How to fake, like you are a nice and caring person. If I were to give you $50, what would you do with it? I'd eat. How long can you eat? How long can you live on $50? There are times when I, I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. We can always do better. I'm gonna keep trying if you guys keep trying. I have a love in my life. It makes me stronger than anything you can imagine. From Tuscaloosa, Alabama, this is Aspect Radio. I'm Corey Kraft. And I'm Ben Flanagan. Welcome to another episode of Aspect Radio. We're going to be joined today by my brother Graham from all the way up in New York City via Skype. It's been five years since Paul Thomas Anderson's film There Will Be Blood knocked us in the face. And it had been five years since we had seen Paul Thomas Anderson with Punch Drunk Love. So hopefully we won't have to wait that long again. But we have seen his new film, The Master, starring Joaquin Phoenix, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Amy Adams. I wonder how he got here and what he's after. Is it really all so easy that he just came across us? You are an everlasting spirit, Freddie. I don't believe you. You make this up. I I know you're trying to calm me down, but just say something that's true! Are you thoughtless in your remarks? Do your past failures bother you? Is your life a struggle? Is your behavior erratic? What are you running from? He's dangerous. He will be our undoing if we continue to have him here. If we are not helping him, then it is we who have failed him. Perhaps he's past help. Or insane. So, guys, this is going to be a fairly spoiler-heavy discussion. I hate to say that because Andrew is sitting right here having not seen the film. But to get in a little bit about what this film is about, it's about... A Navy man, Joaquin Phoenix, who is now a drifter now that the war has ended and is sort of aimless in the United States and sort of finding what it is he wants to do with the rest of his life, even though he has this nervous condition and is an unpredictable sort. And he happens upon this ship where he meets the master, Lancaster Dodd, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is the master, as it were, of this cause that he calls the cause. There are parallels here that we've all heard about, and we all know about it, so we certainly won't beat around the bush. This parallels Scientology and when it was founded and its creator or founder, L. Ron Hubbard. So, Corey, I'm going to throw it to you just in terms of getting the discussion rolling. As these two meet, they seem to form a bond where they do have an instant connection, and it seems like they can coexist in harmony, yet there is something that is standing in between them where they won't be able to coexist and Freddie Quell, played by Joaquin Phoenix, won't be able to find that direction he's been looking for the entire time. But for you, we go back to the rest of Paul Thomas Anderson's work, obviously, as some of the best we've seen in the past 20 years of filmmaking. And There Will Be Blood, I know for Graham, was one of his favorite of the last decade, if not his favorite. And I just have to ask you, is that the kind of, again, hyperbole that you're willing to throw at something like The Master, which is one of the most anticipated films that this show has seen in a while? Well, the thing about The Master, I think, is that even the initiated into Paul Thomas Anderson's sort of uh, style are going to find it quite different from what they expected it to be. I think that the master in terms of Paul Thomas Anderson is his, it's not inaccessible exactly, but it's certainly his most 
mysterious film, certainly the one that requires the most work coming out of it, though it's it's not exactly, you know, homework itself. But it is, I think, very much apart from the movies that he'd made previously, which were all sort of grandly emotional movies that sort of wore their emotions on their sleeve. You know, you compare this to something like Boogie Nights and Magnolia, or even to There Will Be Blood, which has this grand, cathartic, violent ending. You know, The Master doesn't offer easy solutions, I guess, to its viewers, or I guess a sort of easily palatable way down once the movie ends. I mean, it's the sort of movie that's designed to linger and to trouble you for a little while afterward. And and that's certainly the effect that it had on me. Now, I, I do find this his most distanced work in regards to forming a connection with the audience, but I think that's not a slight so much as it is just the sheer I don't know, connections and the emotional availability of his previous films. But I mean, regardless of what you think about the movie, the master is absolutely the work of a filmmaker at the top of his game. I don't think that that's in dispute whether or not I I'm as head over heels for it as I instantly was with a lot of his other work. I, I just don't know. This movie is designed for repeat viewings. I've only seen it once, mm-hmm. and I know that I admire the work on the screen without knowing yet if I love it as much as I love his other stuff. I certainly respect it as much as I respect his other stuff. I'm certainly as in awe of the performances in this movie as I have been with a lot of his other films. But as far as, as that sort of emotional gut thing, I don't I don't think that the master is as interested in providing that. I, I certainly don't feel it with this movie. I think that you're absolutely right when you said that this is probably the most distanced Paul Thomas Anderson has been or or the audience is with one of his films anyway it is it's not his most accessible movie that's for sure but that doesn't mean it's totally inaccessible I think once you crack that code or crack the code for yourself and interpret it Mm -hmm. in a way that is meaningful to you then I do think that it does hit you on that emotional gut level and for me it definitely did after just sort of going through the film in my head and trying to interpret it because it is a tough code to crack because there are a lot of things happening there are a lot of layers to this film obviously as there are in all of Paul Thomas Anderson's films and we'll dig a little bit deeper here in a little bit but for me this movie is all about this journey that obviously that Freddie Quell is on and Joaquin Phoenix's performance as Freddie Quell and once he does or doesn't find what it is he's looking for. And once I feel like the film comes to its conclusion in that regard, it really is a powerful movie for me. And I think it actually hits emotionally a little bit harder than Paul Thomas Anderson's last film, There Will Be Blood, which I think was cold by design in a lot of ways. And Graham, you shared your thoughts about the master via YouTube shortly after you saw it, and we'll definitely embed that video review in our blog, but something that you said, sort of your main point, was that it did not hit you on that emotional level. You didn't have that same feeling that you had walking out of it that you did There Will Be Blood or Boogie Nights or even Magnolia. So talk a little bit about why that was and if that viewpoint has changed since you recorded that review. No, that basic reaction has not changed fact that it didn't hit me on the same level as his previous films it didn't change but the movie has stayed with and it's been uh, almost two weeks now since i've seen it and it stayed with me and I've, i keep thinking about the scenes i keep thinking about the structure and i, I do want to see it again although it wasn't 
you know, I didn't have as much fun watching the Masters as I did the Expendables too. But I definitely want to go back and see it again. I want to go back and watch it, you know, especially for the structure, you know, just to sort of see where he starts it, where it goes, and where it ends. And uh, just to kind of, you know, like you said, Ben, crack the code. I keep going back to Eyes Wide Shut because when I initially saw that movie, it didn't hit me on, on a gut level. I knew that I had seen something special. And I was definitely entertained, same with the master. But it took many more viewings and a lot more time for it to really hit home. And then I feel like these movies are similar in a lot of ways. Obviously, hopefully, Paul Thomas Anderson can make a lot more movies subsequent to the master than Kubert could, Eyes Wide Shut. I still feel the same way about it. I just want to see it again. I think it is tough. And I think, you know, Ben, you told me, Corey, you had initially tried to get Corey to record the podcast. Corey said he needed a few more days to to mull it over is that right yeah that's right the day after i saw it at the youtube review and a lot of that is just mindless babble but i mean i think that's interesting Corey, that you were reluctant to even talk about it after you'd seen it. you wanted a few days to think about it that just speaks to the to the movie yeah i mean to be honest as soon as i walked out of the theater i i honestly didn't know what to make of it i was leaning positive of course just based on the sheer craft and skill of what is displayed on the screen. But you walk out of that theater initially, and you, to be honest, it's you need the time. You need the time to sort of talk with somebody about it and, and puzzle it all out. And I had that in the days subsequent to seeing it. But I can't imagine seeing this movie at, say, a film festival after seeing, like, two other movies and going into another movie and then being expected to you know, sit down and write an instant reaction to it. Like so many film bloggers and critics had to do with this movie. I mean, what is that? How do you process this movie of all movies in a setting like that? I just can't, I can't picture that this movie in particular, you just need extra time with to, to really crack it. And, and I don't even know that I have cracked it yet. No, it's going to take a while. And while, again, I feel like I've come to some sort of conclusion, I think the next time I see it, the second time I see it, I might go back completely on that and say I was totally wrong. Here's how I feel about it now. I think it's interesting. I have a Vulture.com article in front of me where they have this feature called What is the Master Really About? And it has five separate interpretations Mm -hmm. on what it could be about. And it brings up things like the search for family and stability. It brings up something like the politics of cults and the cults of politics, post-war on we you could say that this movie is all about sex you could say that this movie is all about man as an animal and whether or not man can be tamed or contained when he does have those animalistic qualities and those things that drive him like alcohol and sex and these things that seem to drive freddy in his sort of post-world war ii malaise that he's sort of drifting in and out of but for me this movie all comes down to something that bookends the movie you see that this film opens with freddy on a beach with these sailors, his fellow sailors, and they've made this woman out of sand. There's a moment where Freddy, who seems sex-crazed, starts simulating sex with the sand lady. So that sort of just speaks to, yeah, this addiction he may or may not have and something that is driving him and something that does parallel the tendencies of an animal. But there's a moment at the end of the film once Freddy has taken his journey where he shares a moment with the sand lady again that seems to be on the other side of the spectrum compared to what you've seen at the beginning. And I think it harkens back to these flashbacks that we get with Freddy and this lost love, Doris. Mm -hmm. And I forget the actress's name who plays her. But I think that that is the driving force of this film. And yes, he does have this meeting and this relationship that he develops instantaneously with 
Lancaster Dodd, and they hit it off in a way that speaks to a, a new sort of love and relationship in his life that might complete him in some way. They are soulmates, I think you could make an argument for. They feel like they are at a certain moment. But again, they hit this fork in the road where they have to decide whether they can go on. And whether or not they can is is fairly ambiguous like a lot of this movie. But for me, what he finds with Lancaster isn't comparable, or to an extent it is when he first meets with him. But it's in the end, it's not comparable to what he had with Doris. And I feel like he isn't in the end fulfilled with the cause, and specifically with his new soulmate or his new friend. And to me, that relationship and that satisfaction that he gets from him is just as temporary as alcohol or sex in his life, which are things that he uses to escape from this depression and, again, this ennui that we had discussed. But I didn't know how important to you is Doris in this film, Graham or Corey, because I've heard people say that she might be more of a distraction and is only part of the bigger picture. Well, I think that Doris speaks to, for me, you know, obviously on the surface, the cause, Lancaster Dodd's organization, the cause is viewed uh, in a negative light on the surface in the movie. You know, obviously it, it, it's portrayed as a cult. Lancaster dies portrayed as a cult figure where he sort of manipulates everyone and shouts anyone down that doesn't agree with him. And I think that if you look a little bit deeper, you'll see that the cause and the methods of the cause actually motivate Joaquin Phoenix's character to find the courage to seek out Doris and sort of tie up those loose ends in his life that were preventing him from from being happy so where you know there are a lot of bad things about the cause it did allow him to go to her obviously it didn't work out and that led to sort of this sort of epilogue section of the movie but you say that his relationship with Dodd wasn't fulfilling enough I think that there is a scene that contradicts that at the very end of the movie when He's having sex with a girl, and then Joaquin Phoenix, he's having sex with a girl, and he begins to repeat the uh, processing scene that we saw earlier. He begins to say the same things that Lancaster said to him while he's forming a sexual act with a girl. So that, you know, that obviously brings up another topic, which is based around the question of whether or not there's homoeroticism going on or some kind of homosexual relationship going on between Freddie and Lancaster because obviously he's in a sexual act with a woman but he wants to stop that and then engage in this thing that obviously recalls an instance that occurred between him and Lancaster and then a few scenes before that Lancaster weeps as he sings this sentimental love song to Freddie and there's another scene prior to that where you know in my opinion Amy Adams performs a sexual act on Lancaster Dodd in order to try to get him to stop thinking or feeling any kind of potentially homosexual feelings that he has towards Freddie Quill. You know, for me, I I don't think that Doris is the Rosetta Stone, so to speak, for this movie. She's, I, I think, representative of a sort of normal life that Freddie lost the ability to have, you know, a wife and kids and just a typical lifestyle that he lost when he went to war, when he developed this post-traumatic stress disorder, and when he comes back and, and just discovers that he can't fit in to the normal world anymore, that he's beholden, I guess, to these vices and these addictions that he has. So he comes back and, you know, at his lowest point finds... Lancaster Dodd, you know, who seems to at least offer some solution that I'm not sure that Freddie Quell ever really believes is valid, but he's accepted into this group. And I think that acceptance 
is more profound to him than any sort of religious answer that the cause might provide. And I think that Lancaster Dodd also sees in Freddy, I don't not not exactly an equal, but an opportunity to legitimize his own work by turning this beast in a man's clothing into something resembling, I don't know, a respectable man. But also he sees in, in Freddie Quell these urges of his own that he's repressed, whether by wearing the guise of a of an intellectual or by, you know, the sort of manipulations of his wife, like Graham touched on. They both, I think, represent this longing towards something that they can't have in one another. And when they split ways at the end of the film, I think it's it's profound in that way. I don't know that Freddie comes away from the cause at the end of the film as a more, uh, I don't know, complete person. But the cause and his time with Lancaster like you said, Graham did give him the ability to sort of tie up the loose ends in his life, and he comes away seemingly stronger. You know, at the end of the movie, after he breaks away from Lancaster Dodd, is the only time that we see him actually able to perform a sex act. Every other opportunity of his was stymied, either by the unwillingness of the woman or his own drunken buffoonery and passing out and whatnot as in his date near the beginning of the movie so i think he comes away a bit stronger but not terribly fulfilled and i think the great mystery of the master is how anyone can be fulfilled not only by religion but by the relationships around us yeah i think there's a pretty bittersweet quality to the ending of this film and where freddie ends up because you're not really sure because you said it's not totally fulfilling because i think that he has realized that he's lost forever the one substantive thing in his life and that was doris and when he finally does make this decision to jet from the cause and leave lancaster behind when he realizes what it is in his life that he does want back and something that would fulfill him he sees when he goes to visit Doris again, that it's not there anymore. And yeah, he can't have that life because she's moved on without him. That's a sad thing. But that last moment in the film where we are reunited with the sand lady that was built Mm -hmm. and that we saw him with before, it's a much more tender moment where he's laying with this sculpture that, in my opinion, obviously reminds him of her and those better days that he had. And he seems happier that he can recall those memories and look upon them as fond memories instead of things that would haunt him or make him a bad person. And I think that these applications that the cause uses on Freddy in their attempt to tame him, those sort of have a reverse effect where they're meant to sort of eradicate him of those haunting memories and those things that might affect him from past lives or past memories anyway. I think instead they remind him about the good old days and reinforce the fact that he was happier with Doris and that's something that he wants back and what he has at the cause, something that he doesn't believe in from a religious standpoint necessarily, that is what sends him off. His behavior when the cause is threatened is interesting to me because I don't know that he ever actually truly buys into it, but he won't really take for anybody else criticizing it either. He doesn't care about the cause, though. He cares about Lancaster. Right. I, I think that I think that's what it boils down to. Or if he does have some sort of faith in the cause it's surface level and he's questioning it the whole time just hearing 
say, uh, Kevin J. O'Connor's doubting at the release of the second book, I mean, he leaves the cause right after that. It's enough to sort of put him off the path for good, I think. Well, and there's also a shot that reminded me a lot of Boogie Nights during the drug deal sequence uh-huh. when he holds on Mark Wahlberg for about 30 seconds straight. There's a shot kind of like that during Lancaster's book presentation or his sermon where you see this look of confusion and disappointment just totally wash over Freddy's face mm-hmm. where he has this realization about his friend about this cause business and I think that yeah he's taking a lot more out on poor Kevin J. O'Connor's character I don't know what Paul Thomas Anderson has against he this just, guy he, he has a beatable <laughs> face I guess he does but he's releasing a lot more onto him than just beating him up like he did before on the surface level of someone just disagreeing with the fundamental practices or principles of the cause. I mean, it seems like in that instance that that's where he realizes for good that the cause and Lancaster can't offer him what he wants, can't offer him the, the true comfort and the answers that he wants. And, you know, I think that it's interesting that you bring that Vulture article up because I, I hadn't seen that before, but it sounds like all of those things that it that it brings up as possible interpretations are part of it. They're all in this movie. You know, the idea of Freddie Quell standing in for sort of post-war America, sort of in shell shock after World War II and, and turning to any and all outlets for comfort and for some sort of explanation as to how this sort of thing can happen. That's, that's interesting, and I think it's there. But again, I think that the problem... Well, not a problem, but but one of the things that makes this movie so difficult isn't sort of piecing together ambiguous scenes, but sort of trying to figure out which scenes support which themes, because there's so much to unpack in this movie. It's not trying to do the, the movie's job necessarily. It's trying to figure out how to put it all together, which is interesting. I want to talk a little bit about the performances in the movie really quick. Joaquin Phoenix, all sorts of hyperbole had been thrown in his direction, this being one of the best performances of this young decade and of the past several years. A lot of the same things people were saying about Daniel Day-Lewis with There Will Be Blood, and we know now that that was all justified. Names like Marlon Brando and Robert De Niro have been thrown around in terms of acting parallels. Do you feel like Joaquin Phoenix is delivering on that level or do you think that he's a long way off of what even Daniel Day-Lewis was doing a few years ago? No, I I think that he deserves all the praise he's getting here. But to answer that question simply, I would just say that if There Will Be Blood and The Master came out in the same year and it has occurred in history where directors make two great movies in the same year, like in 1974, if these two movies had come out in the same year and Phoenix and Daniel Day-Lewis were both in the same category for Best Actor, I would vote for Daniel Day-Lewis, simply put. You know, I'm not trying to be critical of Joaquin Phoenix, because I thought it was a totally unique and original performance, but just, I personally like Daniel Day-Lewis better in their own blood. I, I feel strongly about that. That's not a tough decision. I think it's rare, Corey, that we do see this sort of unhinged unpredictability mm-hmm. from actors anymore. And it's interesting, in particular, that it's coming from Joaquin Phoenix, a guy who has obviously been in the news because of his last performance, and we can call it that now, finally a performance in I'm Still Here, which Graham was a big fan of. The guy didn't take a break. I wouldn't call this a comeback role. Instead, I would say that that was a great performance, if you accept it as that, and this is, too, maybe his best performance yet, but the guy's doing his best acting at this point in his career, in my opinion. And again, it is a breath of fresh air, even though you feel tense 
and unstable watching it that we are able to see this kind of unpredictability again even at this point because it feels like we've seen it all most of the time yeah, I think it's a it's a an excellent performance as well. It's it's certainly of a type with Daniel Plainview because it's the same sort of big, larger than life characterization brought to life. I, I think by actors who um, just sort of chew up the screen, not in a bad way, but you know they sort of own you know every moment that they're in the movie. But Joaquin Phoenix, I mean, I think this is my favorite performance of his. I think it's one of the better performances of the year so far. And, you know, certainly he puts a lot into it. It's it's just one of those things that, you know, like the performances of Daniel Day-Lewis, it just seems like Joaquin Phoenix owns every bit of Freddie Quell, and there are never any unconvincing moments. I'd say the same applies here to Philip Seymour Hoffman in a less flashy role, though he does have moments where he's prone to a violent outburst himself. And then in perhaps the most restrained role of the film, you have Amy Adams, who I think is absolutely wonderful in this movie. It just uh, knocks it out of the part in a very steely-eyed, more sinister role than she traditionally takes. Absolutely. And Philip Seymour Hoffman is clearly at the top of his game, too, like Paul Thomas Anderson is. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that he has taken this journey with this still young filmmaker. I go back to Heart 8 and the sort of cameo that he had in that when he was an unknown actor, even. And it was brilliant to see him go from that as this just rambunctious, totally boisterous gambler at a craps table to what he's doing here with such nuance as Lancaster Dodd. You're right, it isn't as showy or as loud, but I think that it's right on the level of what Phoenix is doing, and we're seeing Hoffman do some of the best work he's ever done as well. Graham, you and I had a conversation shortly after you'd seen this film where you told me that, yeah, it wasn't as showy, and say he got nominated for an Oscar or any sort of award, he didn't really have that big moment or that Oscar clip that was the stamp that we would all remember in this movie about his performance. I've got to disagree with you, and you might feel differently now, but I think that there are several moments throughout this movie where he has these emotional outbursts, but he also has these moments, in particular during Freddie and Lancaster's final meeting, where so much of his emotions are pent up in his eyes as he's welling up singing to Freddie in that last scene. It's totally amazing to me, and it's just Philip Seymour Hoffman firing on all cylinders, but compared to Joaquin Phoenix or just on its own, how did you feel about Hoffman's performance, Graham? Well, I personally had more fun and enjoyed the movie more when Hoffman was the center of attention. I honestly went into the movie looking forward to to seeing what Hoffman was going to do. I kind of wanted, you know, it's, it's been a long while since... He's had the chance to really shine in a uh, Paul Thomas Anderson movie. You know, he's never really had a, a lead role. You know, obviously had sort of a goofy, fun part in Punch Drunk Love, and, and then a, a really excellent performance in Magnolia, and then, of course, Boogie Nights in the, the role you mentioned in Heart 8. But, you know, I was kind of hoping that this was going to be his sort of Daniel Day-Lewis uh, opportunity in a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. I think that Joaquin Phoenix, you know, since it was, was his character's show, got a bigger chance to do that. But I love Philip Seymour Hoffman in this. I love the look of him, his voice, his manner, and I, I thought it was great. I think he would totally deserve to get nominated for, uh, you know, I guess Best Supporting Actor, even though I think he could work either way. But I think he, he would probably, he's probably going to end up getting nominated in the Best Supporting Actor category. But like I said, I had more fun watching the movie when, when uh, he was the center of attention. Definitely, and some things to mention too. The music in this film I think is amazing. 
Johnny Greenwood brings it again like he did with There Will Be Blood. Maybe, in my opinion, maybe even a better score this time around. That's interesting. It didn't stand out as much Oh, to it me. totally did. It totally did for me. And also the songs that Paul Thomas Anderson uses throughout this movie, these very old 1940s and 50s songs sung by Ella Fitzgerald and Helen Forrest and Joe Stafford, two of those women I was totally unfamiliar with, obviously, prior to this. But I think those have great significance in this movie. And Philip Seymour Hoffman's musical interludes. Maybe he'll perform at the Oscars this year. That would be really interesting. That would be something. (laughs) Uh, Arranged naked women around him again and... Oh, well, that too, but I yeah. meant, yeah, the final scene. The yeah, final so scene, there are yeah. a few Philip Seymour yeah. Hoffman set pieces. He gets uh, he gets some moments. Yeah, but it, it's technically, too, it's just a gorgeous movie. Graham, you had the, the privilege of seeing it in 70 millimeter up in New York City, but in your review, you mentioned that you didn't really notice much of a difference. I, I can say, you know, obviously I didn't see it in 70 millimeter, but my digital projection was pretty stunning. No, it looked great. It did, but... But what's interesting is I've seen one other movie in 70 millimeter in my life, and that was far and away, and the aspect ratio was different. And this, the aspect ratio isn't that 235 to 1 super widescreen that we're used to from Paul Thomas Anderson. It's like more like 16 by 9. So the image is a little more compressed and not as grand as, as what Paul Thomas Anderson usually gives us. But it did look beautiful, and I don't know if the 70 millimeter thing, I, you know, it, it just for me i'd have to see him side by side to be able to, to make a judgment on it so i wouldn't if, if somebody knows a lot about projection and all that and they want to go do it you know go see it and enjoy it but to the average moviegoer i would say that that's not that that shouldn't be that big of a factor like just go to a theater that has solid projectors and and you know where you're going to be comfortable and enjoy it yeah it, it is a great looking movie though and it's noteworthy to point out that this is paul thomas anderson's first movie without his longtime director of photography robert ellswit this was shot by high malamere jr who is the cinematographer, still a young guy, I think, but the guy who shot Youth Without Youth and Tetro for Francis Ford Coppola. And I think this movie is terrific looking. The last thing I'll mention about this before we move on is this marketing campaign for this movie was very interesting because now having seen it, we know that a lot of the footage and a lot of what Paul Thomas Anderson and the folks behind that showed us didn't make it into the final product. What did you think of that? Was that disappointing for you at all, or did you just sort of accept whatever Anderson threw at you? I kind of only watched each of those trailers once in an attempt to not spoil the movie for Mm -hmm. myself, so I didn't really have any of those scenes fresh in my memory, except for the one scene that sort of was this continuing image throughout the marketing of Freddy sort of outstretched over the side of a ship as the wa- you know with the churning water below him that one I did notice didn't make it into the movie but it didn't really strike me as as a uh, disappointment but mostly because I was trying to figure out what I was what what was up there right. what I was actually seeing well I, I just think it's I think it's an ingenious marketing approach because aside from a very few clips and images from the movie that we see in those trailers most of what we saw before we actually went to the theater to see the movie doesn't end up on screen so like it has not been spoiled for us which happens so much with movies like where we see advanced trailers and advanced clips you know when we actually decide to watch them then we relive what we've already seen on our computer screen and in this case so little of what we'd seen on the internet and on tv actually ends up in the movie and i mean so everything is really fresh for us so i think it's brilliant you know i mean it's it's 
also leaves a lot to the imagination since there's so much left to see and absorb and, and try and figure out and understand about this movie that's just on the cutting room floor, so to speak. And even though we've seen it, I still feel like there's still a lot to absorb about it. Mm-hmm. We've only seen it the one time. So when we see it again, maybe we'll have another discussion about it. But that does it for the master Paul Thomas Anderson's latest film, which is playing in wide-ish release right now. A little less than a thousand screens. I think throughout the U.S. in Birmingham at a couple of rave theaters and at the summit. We'll take a quick break. Stay with us. Doc, you gotta believe me. Then tell me, future boy, who's president of the United States in 1985? Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan? The actor? (laughs) Then who's vice president? Jerry Lewis. Well, let's move on to another new movie, newer than The Master anyway. We've seen Ryan Johnson's third film, Looper, which we were really looking forward to heading into this season. We're both big fans of his debut, Brick. Corey's a bigger fan of The Brothers Bloom than I am, but it definitely had a lot of flair that we now know Ryan Johnson for, and specifically language, I think, which plays such Mm -hmm. a huge role in his films. Now you have Looper, which combines so many of these elements we've seen in the first two films and sort of culminate into something pretty, I think, impressive and very ambitious overall. I am one of many specialized assassins called Loopers. We eliminate people from the future. Time travel has not yet been invented, but 30 years from now, it will have been. So when criminal organizations in the future need someone gone, they zap them back to me, and I do the necessaries. The only rule is, never let your target escape. Even if your target is you. You have Joseph Gordon-Levitt starring as this hitman of the future where it's his job to basically take out these criminals who appear before him via time travel in this future where time travel is illegal, but a criminal organization has managed to use it to their advantage to take out their enemies. So once Joseph Gordon-Levitt is put in a position to take himself out, from the future when his future self appears in front of him as played by Bruce Willis he hesitates and things get a little shaky and that's sort of how the movie plays out so Graham you saw this movie recently thoughts on Looper because I think this is your first exposure to Ryan Johnson's work yeah it is I haven't seen Brick or Brothers Bloom I'm definitely looking forward to catching up with Brick since that sort of seems to be the one that people point to as as the, the movie that made Ryan Johnson a household name among cinema fans but I really enjoyed Looper and you know overall I, I had a blast with it you know Ben I know you have an issue with something that happens with the story about halfway through but I bought into the mythology about the Rainmaker and I wanted to see what was going to happen I love stories like this when we sort of get an idea of, of a character but we don't actually see them but now then we see a version of the character before it actually becomes what we've you know what we've heard described by characters that have actually encountered it and i thought that it was really effective and i i was engaged and, and i wanted to see how it all played out you know i was a little obviously just the concept of seeing children murdered on screen is tough you know and you know i think that people are gonna have problems with that rightfully so because uh a you know a filmmaker a writer an artist can come up with 
millions of different scenarios and they decide on that one it's it's sort of tough you know it's it's absolutely difficult and uh not for everybody by any means but i think that in the end it, it tells a story that's not completely ugly and especially with the way it works out and, and i think it's very creative and i enjoyed the world that, that he created and i'm curious to hear what you guys thought about it i love this movie to speak to the moment that you just described graham i think that that's a thematically very important moment in the film because I think what I like so much about this movie is not the fact that it is a cool time travel movie, which it is, but it is a cool time travel movie that uses the device of time travel to tell a very human story about anxiety about the future and about becoming who you're destined to become and whether or not you feel like you can change the path that you're on even when presented with all evidence to the contrary the notion of the sort of young version of one character a young version of joe and the old version of joe who hasn't really matured or grown up as much as it seems like he has or as much as you might think is very interesting because these are obviously both the same person and they are both prepared to do some terrible things to protect what's theirs based on what we discover is Joe's very troubled upbringing of, of not really having anything. So once you sort of get, I guess, the psychological background between this character and in these two incarnations, it becomes very interesting. And coupled with the subplot of the Rainmaker and sort of the driving force of what you would do potentially to stop a person, a, a person who would grow up down a violent path. The film really raises some interesting questions about whether or not using more violence to stop this is the answer. I think it comes down pretty solidly on the side of no, of using, I don't, I don't know, any other method at one's disposal to sort of send people down the right path other than just stopping their path completely. And that really spoke to me. I think that this movie, I think it's thematically very tight. I think that it's very well written in traditionally Ryan Johnson style, and it's very well cast. And for me, that just all adds up to this really irresistible package that I pretty much wholeheartedly adore. Can't say wholeheartedly, Corey, unfortunately, because like Graham said, about halfway through the movie, I feel like this totally, the story, which was moving at a blistering speed, hits a brick wall. Are you talking about when they get to the farm? When he meets Emily Blunt's character. See, I think that stuff is so great. It's, But it's okay, but it becomes a totally different movie, in my opinion. Which I'm okay with. Well, the first, I guess, 45 minutes or so, the time that you spend with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, when you're watching him as this looper who is you know, doing his job and, and taking out these folks and his interactions with fellow loopers and the Jeff Daniels character who starts out great but gets totally shortchanged down the stretch of this movie, unfortunately. Totally did a disservice to that character. It, it was great. It was extremely well-paced. I thought that the look of the film was great. The special effects were cool and just the overall design that Ryan Johnson so consistently brings to the table he did it once again here in his third movie successfully despite Paul Dano in the first hour oh come on he's pretty bad no he's not the only aspect I'll say that I enjoyed about his performance is what happens to his character yeah. once he makes a decision that I thought was really unique and something that we hadn't seen in a time travel film before and this film is incredibly violent and it, you know you bring you bring up violence and you said that it makes its stance pretty clear that fighting violence with violence isn't the best means in the world but I think that in the end he does in fact fight violence with violence to some extent and whether that means using violence to make sacrifices 
to prevent others from experiencing violence in the future, okay. But I don't know. When you get to this Sid character and Emily Blunt's character, I think that the movie sort of spins itself into nothing more than just kind of a mediocre comic book origin story in a no, way. Oh, I, I, I really see. do. See, to me, it turned into like X-Men 3 almost, mm. you know, something that you would see in something like that, or even like cliched horror film that you see now where children play such central roles as villains or these creatures or these beings that have these supernatural abilities. This was no better than something like Orphan to me. I think it's entirely better because of the writing and the skill of the performances here. I mean, sure, it, it's a familiar trope, but the whole movie is built on familiar tropes. It's it's Johnson's spin and the spin that his performers put on it that makes it special. I don't know. I gotta say, it totally fell flat for me and just felt like something I'd seen so many times, especially during the climax of this movie. And I think... I, I think See, I disagree with that. I completely. think that it, it ties itself together it, nicely, fine, and it closes the loop, so to speak, of the film, and there aren't any questions that I think can be raised. It's, it's not a movie that's difficult to process as it plays out. It's wrapped with a nice little bow. It just didn't do it for me. It just didn't really, I didn't really feel it like I did in the first hour or so. Mm. Speaking of violence, you know, I think it's interesting that Gangster Squad, that movie got pushed back after the massacre that happened over the summer. I'm honestly, the, the shootout sequence with Bruce Willis had me feeling a little queasy and almost felt like that was sort of a little too close for comfort, a little maybe in bad taste that, you know, it was just a gratuitous shoot 'em up scene. And I'm not saying that movies shouldn't have those at all. I'm not saying that at all, but I just feel like in light of what's happened in the summer, it did make me feel a little uneasy. Like someone would watch that and sort of maybe take away the wrong message from that that scene. Did that have any sort of similar impact on you guys at all? It left me feeling uneasy because it felt tacked on. It just didn't really work from a narrative standpoint to me. And I think that played into, again, what I mentioned with the Jeff Daniels character, who starts out as this crime lord who's taken advantage of time travel mm -hmm. and put himself in a good position in the past and you have some really clever lines between him and Joseph Gordon-Levitt early on but again he gets reduced to this just gangster behind a desk for the rest of the movie who interrogates his loopers and then by the end becomes sort of just this sleazy guy who gets dealt with off screen actually during this sequence that Graham is referring to and I just didn't really think the movie needed that because it didn't need anything like that up to that point. So, again, it felt gratuitous in that way to me. Well, I guess I, I intellectually it makes sense just to underscore old Joe and, you know, the fact that he hasn't grown up. And, you know, it uses this to dispense of potential loose ends on a mm -hmm. plot, plot basis. As far as the execution being gratuitous, different strokes. But, I mean, it doesn't strike me as any more or less gratuitous than any other similar action movie scene. I mean, you have movies that are pretty more indefensible like this dread movie or or the expendables 2 just to put a point on it and this at least i felt put a commentary on it i don't want to get into the whole child performance thing or child actor oh thing necessarily because i don't think it's as much the kid's job as again it is ryan johnson's and choosing to go into the direction that he goes into where again i feel like you have this parallel of this super villains origin story in like a comic book movie okay but it's also more importantly a parallel of joe's own upbringing that's right. why he becomes okay. 
I, I don't know, more attached to this situation and is willing to actually become invested in the outcome of this as far as, you know, instead of just sort of like stepping back, removing himself and saying, I'm looking out for my own things. And, you know, instead of saying, you know, this is what men do. They take care of themselves. I think it works on that level. As far as a superhero origin story or supervillain origin story, I mean, I see what you're saying, but at the same time, I don't know what it was, but the images in this section, the sort of emergence of, of what Sid can do and mm-hmm. who he is mm-hmm. took me by such surprise that it didn't bother me on that level because I had no idea it was coming. I mean, I suspected with all the setup that young Joe was at the right place, at the place where old Joe would ultimately need to go. But as far as the revelation of what that entailed, I was so taken aback by it and, and the presentation of that and these manifestations of what uh, Sid can do were shocking and really well put together for me i just think that you know when, when bruce willis first mentioned the rainmaker uh, or who no no paul, paul dano mentioned yeah. the rainmaker right you know that was really compelling and obviously we don't ever see him we don't see what he does necessarily but to see how he began that it sold it for me and that that got my imagination in gear and i thought that was really effective and i you know i thought that the kid was great and just to see, you know, how he set him up being he would question authority and he would be angry, but he was also very skilled already at math and electronics. I just thought that the origin worked for me. And the fact that, that you it gets you thinking about something that you don't see is a really effective conceit that isn't used often enough in movies. Yeah, I think probably the strongest part of this movie is you get a couple of different timelines here when Joe at first when he encounters his future self older joe we see how it plays out but then we get you know when 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 bruce willis sort of uses his i guess resourceful methods to escape that situation and then we return back to that a little bit later but what happens if he closed his loop Mm -hmm. and the sequence where it plays out over the next 30 years of Joe's life, you have this extended montage where he travels to Shanghai, China. When he does go to China and when he grows up into Bruce Willis, I thought that that was just really strong filmmaking. Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent, excellent sequence. Yeah. Did you find the makeup distracting at all? No. The Joseph Gordon-Levitt yes. makeup? <laughs> I didn't at all. I, I expected to. Yeah. And I honestly, after the initial sort of like, okay, well, he looks different, sort of wore off, I bought into it. Yeah. I don't know. I think I kind of bought into it just because this was like a futuristic sci-fi yeah. movie and those things are there sometimes. So yeah, I'm, I'm okay with that. But yeah, I did find myself just kind of looking at it and being like, why? And I, I question, well, how come you go to all this trouble to make Joseph Gordon-Levitt look like Bruce Willis and you make no effort to make Bruce Willis look like Joseph Gordon-Levitt and sort of meet in the middle, <laughs> so well, to speak? because you're going to... I think that you know you got to go one way or the other. You know they could have chosen one way or the other. What I find inconsistent is that the older version of Paul Dano looked nothing like him. So that was completely inconsistent with this rule that they created by making Joseph Gordon-Levitt look and talk like Bruce Willis. Because Paul Dano's guy looked just like I don't know a guy that might have auditioned to be Dawson's dad on Dawson's Creek or something. <laughs> Yeah, well, so did anything about this, Corey, sort of reassure you about time travel movies? Because it doesn't really seem like we've gotten a lot of good ones lately. And here comes Looper as, I think, overall, a more passable entry 
into the category. Well, I think it just reinforces that time travel movies shouldn't be taken lightly. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to need a a strong hand behind them and somebody who's actually thought it all out, like I think Ryan Johnson has here. But again, like the time travel mechanics and I I guess all the notions of causality and as uh, a character puts it later, you know, early in the movie, this sort of stuff, you don't want to sit and talk about it. Obviously, there are paradoxes that that this movie can't avoid, that no time travel movie can avoid. But but I, I think it's interesting to discuss. I think it's interesting to think about. But it's not really even what I responded to most deeply in this movie. Though I think that as, as a science fiction film, it's probably the best science fiction film that we've gotten since, I don't know, Inception. I think it's comparable in scope and in ambition, if not in budget. Uh, because obviously Christopher Nolan can have whatever he wants to have to put his visions together. And, and Ryan Johnson did this and with like 50 or $60 million for that amount of money. I think it's pretty impressive. Yeah. I mean, Corey, you're, you're exactly right. That's exactly what I was going to try and say next was that this movie would not exist if it weren't for inception. I remember thinking that after inception happened, it was such a relief because a completely original idea achieved that level of commercial success that there was, you know, you were only going to see other opportunities afforded filmmakers to do that because that gave the people that signed the checks the confidence in the fact that sometimes filmmakers are talented enough and their ideas are original and compelling enough that you don't need a franchise or a best-selling book or a comic book hero to create something that turns a profit. And I think this is a direct result of what happened with Inception. But I would also say that Inception didn't necessarily start a new wave of original ideas so much as it started, I don't know, with studios thinking that it was okay for their tentpole movies to be a little smarter than they had been. You know, you've since inception we've had movies that have sort of i mean we've had dumb movies of course we've had things like battleship but we've had movies like rise of the planet of the apes and we've had really satisfying tentpole movies like the avengers that have come out and sort of reinforced this notion that it's okay to be a little more complicated and a little brainier and then you know a little more satisfying i think than your standard i don't know paint by numbers fair i mean we've had our fair share of that too but if if we've gotten anything it's that maybe the summer blockbusters are getting slightly smarter even within the parameters of being within a franchise i think that Looper owes more, way more in terms of its story to Terminator than it does to Inception since, you know. Yeah, definitely. It's basically about a guy coming back in time from the future to destroy, you know, someone that could rise up and, and affect the future in a positive, negative way. But, man, I, I don't agree with you on the Avengers, Corey, but... I'll, I'll go. I'll go with you on uh, Planet of the Apes, even though it was a reboot. Well, you know what I mean. I mean, it's it's not like that. All of a sudden, Hollywood after Inception made a lot of money, woke up and said, "Well, stop what we're doing. We need to solicit original ideas." But I think that they they took some of the ideas from Inception and sort of the notion that it can be smarter and you know that people would accept that. And and I mean Christopher Nolan even did that himself with with The Dark Knight Rises. Even though personally I find that the dumbest of his Batman movies. Oh come on! I'm just saying. And what's the common denominator here? Got to give credit to Joseph Gordon-Levitt for. Yeah, well that's true. Selecting he's he's awesome in in Looper. I mean he and Ryan Johnson have had a relationship going back to Johnson's first film Brick, which wasn't the first film that I think catapulted Gordon Levitt into the sort of respected 
adult actor thing. <laughs> of course, he was in. <laughs> Andrew just uh, flapped his wings or flapped his arms like uh, an angel uh, in Angels in the Outfield, reference to Gordon Levitt's child oh. role in that movie. But but Brick, I think, was one of the first movies that got people's attention. Brick and Mysterious Skin were sort of where Joseph Gordon-Levitt stepped out and said, I'm an actor, uh, I'm grown up, and I'm worthy of, of your consideration. And I can be a leading man. Yeah, and I, I think he more than fulfills that promise in Looper, holding the screen with, with an old pro like Bruce Willis, who I think gives one of his better performances in a long time, but he's had a really great year with this and Moonrise Kingdom. And I think Emily Blunt is awesome in this movie. For, for someone who usually has trouble with accents, <laughs> surely you cannot find any fault with her accent here. Well, she didn't have much of one, though. Yeah, but the the point is, she is a British person who had no. Oh, British an Ameri- accent. British to American accent. Yeah. That's like the easiest thing in the world. Oh, is it? Oh, British is it? people, any British person can do an American yeah, accent. Yeah, I, show me, show I me one that can't. I beg me to differ. One that can't. I, I will show you one. I, I I can show you tons of examples of people who slip up, and she never did. Okay, all right. That that's usually hey, not. <laughs> there it is. That's, that's usually not the issue that I have. But okay. Fine. But anyway, that does it for Looper. Playing nationwide, you can catch it in a theater near you. Now, some of you may be able to dismiss this trend as a passing threat. Well, either you're closing your eyes to a situation you do not wish to acknowledge, <laughs> or you are not aware of the caliber of disaster indicated by the presence of non-scripted shows in your community. Well, you got trouble, my friend. Right here I say trouble when you don't have writers. Why, sure, I'm an EP. Certainly mighty proud to say I'm always mighty proud to say it. I consider that the hours I spend putting shit on Fox are golden. And before we wind down here and get into our DVD picks for the week and tell you what's playing nationwide, Corey and Graham, there was some recent news that Family Guy creator, American Dad creator, and writer, director, and co-star of the film Ted, Seth MacFarlane has now been officially tapped to host the next Oscars broadcast. Now, we have a friend, a mutual friend, Matt Scalici, the head of FilmNerds.com, and I don't mean to throw him under the bus here, but just to get a reaction from someone who isn't a big fan of MacFarlane's, I'm going to read you what he said. He says, I literally cannot think of a worse choice off the top of my head. Maybe Bobcat Goldwave. <laughs> Goldwave. But it took me a second. But seriously, what a freaking joke. Honestly, I think a lot of Matt's vitriol for Seth MacFarlane is unfounded, but that's beside the point. But if we're just reacting ourselves, I actually think this is a pretty solid choice by the Academy because they've found someone who has now established himself as a legitimate player in the film industry with the success, the international success of Ted, the highest grossing comedy that I can remember in a while. And then you have obviously his success in television with Family Guy and American Dad and other projects, but he's proven that he can also host. He's a song and dance man. He's released a successful album of swing songs. He's hosted Saturday Night Live successfully. I think that got a good rating and good responses. He hosted the WGA Awards a couple of years ago. He did very well. He's actually made these Comedy Central roasts relatively watchable when he's the MC of those things. Relatively. So, relatively, indeed. But I think a guy like McFarlane is actually what the Academy needs, someone who isn't scared to be a little more irreverent and subversive at a ceremony like this, which sort of wakes the dead and puts them in tuxedos and seats them in the Kodak Theater and expect to get patted on the back by the host to some degree, especially if it's Billy Crystal or someone from the old guard. But what do you guys think? I think he's a good choice. I mean, I, I, I don't understand this paranoia that he's going to turn the Academy Awards broadcast into some soft 
sophomoric string of of his Family Guy style jokes, that's obviously not going to happen. The Academy would never let that happen. But as far as being this sort of old style uh, consummate showman and master of ceremonies in the, in the vein of, of the uh, Oscar hosts of old, I think that he's a fine choice. I think that he'll prove to be uh, an entertaining presence and just his presence alone, will it might draw some more viewers, which couldn't hurt. You know, I, I don't really understand the vitriol either, but I don't think there's been that much vitriol. I think people have mostly been just like, oh, Seth MacFarlane, and then they thought about it. And they were like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, we're singling out Matt. Yeah. but Well, he deserves no, it because that was though. weird. I mean, yeah, it really, was weird. Seth MacFarlane, okay, first of all, he has the resume, as you mentioned, you know, because of the success of Ted. And then just the massive success of Family Guy. He can also sing, and he's funny. So there you go. He's qualified to do it. But the real reason I'm, I'm excited that he's going to host is because he is going to tear people apart. He is not afraid to really get dark with the humor and the satire in the monologue, and that's really what it's all about. And he's, he, you know, he's going to make Ricky Gervais's stuff look tame, I think, by comparison. Ricky Gervais's Golden Globes, you know, just going after the tourists. I think Seth MacFarlane's going to do a lot better in that regard. So I'm really pumped. I'm looking forward to the Scientology jokes related to the Master. You know, you know, he's going there if this makes I don't it. Know. Yeah, Bruce Valanche is going there. I don't know that <laughs> that Seth MacFarlane himself. I mean, that's what I was saying before the show. An Oscar host really succeeds or fails based on the strength of the Academy's provided writers. But it helps that Seth MacFarlane is a writer. Yeah, it, and I th- I'm sure he's that he'll writers too, though. Yeah, I'm sure that he'll take charge and provide most of his own material. But you know, you got to figure that this is going to go through some heavy scrutiny by yeah. by the producers before it ever sees air. Yeah, they want to protect the cloth. Yeah, so they to do. Speak. Yeah, they but do. you know, you have a guy like John Stewart who I think did a good job. I like he brought John his Stewart. Own, he brought his own team in and his own his own thing into it and you got a john stewart hosted oscars like we had hoped for so i think like graham says seth MacFarlane is going to go after some of these folks who and he's going to make them squirm a little bit i I think he might but i think it's going to be milder than than you might expect yeah probably because they do yeah they do have that control this is the academy this is the holy event of the year and they're not going to let somebody come into their church and (laughs) defile it by making fun of these people well maybe he'll make some agreements up until until they go live well i mean there's going to be some scientology jokes i mean that's just (laughs) that's a foregone he's gonna make fun of the fact that they consider it a church the oscars I mean, I just say let them go crazy, and I think it. I think it could be the best Oscars we've had in a long time, as far as an entertainment host standpoint. Hope so. Hope so. Well, on DVD, Corey, is there anything new other than the big one you mentioned before, The Avengers? Well, that was last week. Oh, was it? Yeah. Okay, I, I play by Redbox's rules. Yeah. So. Yeah. This week is uh, Tim Burton's Dark Shadows. That's the big release. A movie that I like half of before it goes careening off the rails in typical late career Tim Burton fashion. (laughs) Worth seeing, I think, for a buck if you can find a Blu-ray because the set design and the cinematography are just terrific. Other than that, some uh, interesting indies that I'm going to catch up with. Sound of My Voice, which is uh, Fox Searchlight released cult drama starring Britt Marling whose uh, previous film Another Earth did not tremendously impress me but uh, I'm going to check this out and then also Red Lights starring Cillian Murphy, Sigourney Weaver and Robert De Niro in a sort of psychics versus skeptics thriller that I haven't heard great things about but both of those also out along with the uh, inexplicably summer released drama People Like Us starring Chris Pine and Elizabeth Banks 
So uh, let me know what you think about that if you see it, because uh, I don't know if I'm going to get around to it. Yeah, me neither. Starting this week, nationwide and in Tuscaloosa at the Cobb Hollywood 16, Taken 2 with Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson, he was on Jimmy Fallon's show last night promoting this thing. And I've got to say, I, I have to mirror Jimmy Fallon's unparalleled enthusiasm in general for Taken 2 because I'm a big fan of the first Taken movie and just of Liam Neeson and this resurgence he's made in his career as just sort of this immortal action hero. So I'm afraid I'm going to see this in the theater. <laughs> oh, I'm going to see it in the theater. Well, of course you are. Yeah. Graham, you like Taken, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm pumped. You- Every time the trailer comes on, I have to say, you're going to be Taken. <laughs> They're like, what are you going to do? Daddy goes, well, I do best. So I'm pumped. I'm ready. Yeah. You've got Expendables 2 and Taken 2. Who wins? And the Grey. Yeah, and the Grey. So the the, In a three-way kickboxing fight. It's going to be a busy Oscar season, that's for sure. (laughs) Also, Tim Burton's film, Frankenweenie, and we mentioned Tim Burton before. Corey, you were not a fan of Dark Shadows, but... I think this obviously looks a little more promising. He's had a lot of success in the stop motion realm. And I've got to say, I I was surprised that he brought this one back out for the feature length Mm -hmm. treatment. And I'm glad that he's releasing it around Halloween season, which I was sad to see that the folks behind Paranorman failed to do. I was actually looking forward to that one more than I was this one. I still haven't seen that. Paranorman's awesome. Yeah. But are you looking forward to Frankenweenie? I wasn't. And then people actually started seeing it. And they the reviews are far more positive than I expected them to be. So I guess I'll see it. I, I mean, I'm still suffering from Tim Burton fatigue. Otherwise, you said that a film that might go wide this week is The Perks of Being a... Is it Wildflower or Wallflower? Who cares? Good Lord. (laughs) Another movie that I was not very interested in seeing until it got some excellent reviews, too. Obviously, this will not be our next Aspect Radio review. (laughs) No. I guess we can write that off. We can confirm it. You can do a recorded version by yourself yeah i mean if it opens around here i'm definitely gonna check it out i'm you know the trailer kind of put me off but so many overwhelmingly positive reviews out of the toronto international film festival kind of snapped me back into it well in another film that you can do a shorter review for yeah. either on your own or you can just knock it out in 30 seconds to a minute right now you mentioned pitch perfect might go wide it is going this wide this week okay the only reason i'm halfway interested in that is because adam divine from workaholics is Uh, in it yeah otherwise it's awesome it's a really funny legitimately good comedy i mean i don't know what your fondness level is for bring it on but if you have any sort of like lingering affection for that movie and that style of sort of self-conscious comedy you'll dig this it's really funny it's got an appealing cast and it's just full of like fun musical performances that are high energy and just doesn't let up i mean it's just a fun movie so you know be skeptical that's fine when you discover it in air quotes on Redbox in march and you find that it's actually pretty good you'll remember this conversation and i'll feel sort of justified but also mostly just kind of disappointed that nobody else saw it in theaters but that's cool i mean whatever man dude it's your life hey well you saw it for free anyway didn't you yeah i did okay Everybody else in the city had that opportunity. It was nowhere close to capacity. Right. But it's a good movie. I do recommend it. I think that people are going to catch on. It's going to be a word of mouth hit, and I'll end up looking pretty good. Well, Graham, thanks again for joining us. Andrew, as always, we appreciate your time and patience and your know-how. So until next week, this is Aspect Radio. I'm Ben Flanagan. And I'm Corey Kraft. Thanks for listening. 
change partners and you waltzed away from me now my arms feel so empty as I gaze around the floor and I keep on changing partners till I Christ, why don't you have some fun? Fun, fun. <laughs> All right, shaka laka doo, shaka laka dooby dooby doo, shaka laka doo. You got a little bit more there, coming in there, baby. Shaka laka doo, baby. I'm almost lighting it, baby. I'm gonna light the cigarette, old timer. What are you gonna do? Two thousand dollar heart aid. Two thousand dollar heart aid's a bet. <laughs> oh man, you play that game, don't you? <laughs> <laughs>